This is an Enlightenment Day talk by Joel, titled, The Anatomy of Awakening, recorded August 13, 2000, at the Center for Sacred Sciences in Eugene, Oregon. So today is Enlightenment Day, and what we're really celebrating on Enlightenment Day is the potential, the possibility for every human being to wake up, to know their true nature, as the Buddhists would put it, their true self, spelled with a capital S, as the Hindus would put it, to know the nature of their soul, as the Christians would put it, to know the nature of reality, al-haq, as the Sufis, the mystics of Islam would put it, to know the secret of the name is one way uh, the Jewish mystics put it. In one way or another, they're talking about really something that is very immediate to us all right now. It's not something woo-wee. It's really answering the question, who are you? Who are you really? And what is this environment you find yourself in? What is really going on here? We pick uh, August 13th, and usually we celebrate it here in a day close to August 13th, but today happens to be August 13th, because that was the date of my awakening. Now already, I'm in trouble, because awakening is the realization that there is no one there to be awakened. That that is part of our delusion, that we are individual separate entities, selves. But language forces us to use words like I and me and you, and that's fine as long as we understand their nature, as long as we understand that it's just language, just just for convenience sake, it is a convention. If we didn't understand how these distinctions are used, we'd be in a lot of trouble, because then I would say something like, I have to get up and go to the bathroom, and then everybody would jump up and run to the bathroom, because nobody knows who's being talked about. So it's not a question of getting rid of thought, of ideas, of language, of words, of concepts. It's a question of recognizing their true nature as well. Then there's no problem. So you can read about my, uh, the account of my awakening and my journey in my book, Naked Through the Gate. I'm not going to spend the morning telling you about that. I wrote that book so I don't have to keep telling that story over and over. But I will say this, uh, a few little words about it especially the end. My awakening took place on August 13th, 1983, in a little motel room in Sheldon, Washington. At the end of 16 months of formal traveling, walking a formal path, uh, I also count the rest of my life that brought me to that point, but when I decided to really make going on a spiritual path my priority, that's when I marked the beginning, really, of my formal journey. And when I woke up in the middle of the night, I had no idea of how it happened. It wasn't the result of any practices I had been doing, because a few days before then, I had sort of gotten to the end of my rope. I would given up all my practices. I had even given up the spiritual path. I would given up the whole rest of my life. So I was just sort of traveling in this sort of exhausted, dazed state. So it seemed to me 
totally an element of uh, grace or spontaneity or just happened. I had no idea how it happened. Seemed totally unique to me, too. I'd never read anybody else's account of awakening like this. And I really didn't know what to make of it. In fact, I didn't even know if really if it was enlightenment. When I first woke up, a few passages and phrases of mystics that I had been reading came to mind, and I was amazed that I suddenly seemed to understand them, particularly those, those crazy Zen masters who I read never understood what they were talking about. Good Lord. And suddenly it was all crystal clear. And then, I don't know when, maybe uh, a day later or sometime, Shortly afterwards, the thought arose, well, is this enlightenment? Maybe this is enlightenment. And it was followed by the very next thought, who cares? <laughs> Whatever it is, I wouldn't trade it for anything. So I ended up calling it gnosis, which was a term that I picked up from one of my early teachers on the path, which is a Greek term meaning direct knowledge, direct realization, direct apprehension of ultimate reality. And uh, I really had not... Uh, a very large vocabulary to talk about this even to myself, let alone anybody else, because I had not followed a traditional path, and I didn't have the advantage of a teacher and a community and a cosmology and a worldview. And it wasn't until later when I went to stay with Franklin Merrill Wolf, who was a mystic philosopher, and I lived with him for a year and a half, that I started to learn a vocabulary, and I started to read more of the mystics, and I've been doing that ever since. And over the years of reading now many accounts of awakening from many traditions, I learned two things. First of all, far from being unique, every element of my path and my awakening I found in some other tradition, somebody else's account. There was nothing really unique about mine at all. But the other thing, and perhaps more uh, interestingly, is I began to notice a kind of pattern. And if you read the accounts of mystics, often they don't know either. They'll say, I don't know how this happened. It just happened. Sometimes their language is um, very emotive, and so they don't bother telling you a lot of details. But the accounts that go into some detail all seem to fit a pattern, and the ones that don't, uh, don't seem to contradict the pattern. So I've sort of put together for this talk a kind of composite picture of what I call the anatomy of awakening. We're going to try to look now at really the moments of awakening, what precedes them in the, just in, uh, in the short time preceding it, how it unfolds, and what can happen in this process. So we're going to try and put a microscope on this. But as I said, this is a composite picture. It doesn't mean that everybody's awakening happens exactly the same way by any means. But there are some interesting principles here. And perhaps uh, knowing about this will illuminate the reasons why we do certain practices and so forth. So before we uh, talk about awakening, however, we have to talk about what it is we are awakening from. And what it is we are waking from is a delusion, specifically the delusion of I and other, of self and world. This dualistic experience that we have that, as I said before, we are some individual separate entity that sort of appeared in this place with all these objects around us and that we're going to disappear. 
So uh, we have to understand something about how this delusion works. So let's begin there. Delusion is based on ignorance. And here we can take ignorance in the verbal form. We literally ignore ultimate reality. We really ignore the true nature of things. We don't pay attention. Our attention is always distracted. It's skipping around from one thing to another, to another, to another. That is why we don't see, just directly, immediately see what's going on. So this problem of, the, of attention being distracted is a major component of ignorance and then how delusion arises. The main thing we are distracted about is this, what we might call the story of I. And this delusion, you know, gets going, it has this sort of snowball effect. It uh, gets this momentum and it creates this whole experience that, that most of us are familiar with of not just being some I and other, but being a very definite I with a history and a story. And uh, one of my students here calls it the Dave show. Uh, <laughs> and I think you can relate to that. So then we start to see everything in relation to the Dave show, or whatever your name is, the story of I. And this is what propels this delusion, which keeps us distracted. We're interested in how everything that we see is going to affect us. This delusion is, and this is very important, it is simply a creation of thought. Not necessarily the formal thought we think of as when we hear our thoughts in our minds. Perhaps a better word is imagination. It's that power that we have in our minds to make distinctions, which is fine. And as human beings, this is a wonderful power. But it's mistaking the distinction to be a reality. And based on that, this distinction between I and others misapprehended, and then we start to identify with various desires and aversions and so forth as belonging to us. And then they provide the fuel, if you like, to get this drama going. So it's, it's a mental drama, it's a creation of our minds, and it's fueled by desires and aversions that we think are, are who we are. Now... One of the things that's very important to understand about this, and this confuses a lot of people, they say, well, what went wrong? Where did this start? Especially in the West here, because you have this historical mind, you know, we're always looking back to causes and effects and so forth. So, you know, we ask, well, when, when was the fall, for instance? But this delusion is being created in every moment of experience. It's not like it happened back there and it's going on. In every moment of experience, this delusion is arising, which is why it's possible to wake up in any moment of experience. Let me uh, just read you something from a great Tibetan master, Longchenpa. And I must tell you, I find the Tibetans particularly astute about this. You know, they spent thousands of years up there in the Himalayas before the Chinese invaded uh, without much else to do but watch these things very carefully. And their analysis are very, very astute. This is a great Tibetan master named Wong Chempa. He writes, Buddha nature, that's the Tibetan term for ultimate reality. The Buddha nature is inherent in everyone from time immemorial. 
It is compared with the sky or space because it is all-pervasive. When you fail to see the Buddha nature as your own nature, that Buddha nature becomes for you an alayat, that's a technical term, the source of everything. However, it is not yet actively producing these things. It is the potential for this process and thus is undifferentiated. From the play of the Alaya Foundation, there arises the sort of unawareness or ignorance that causes you to think of yourself as a single, unique individual. This subtle cognition that thinks I am is known as self-preoccupation. From this arises the self-consciousness of grasping for I and mine, which thinks to grasp or draw to itself in order to establish or prove its own existence. Once the idea of I and mine has arisen, the entire mechanism of sense objects and consciousnesses, or subject and object, proceeds in order to gratify the acquisitiveness of this imagined I through concrete sensory experience. This is a brief description of how grasping consciousness and grasp at objects arise, producing and perpetuating delusion. So, that's a mouthful. That's why I thought to uh, try to diagram this a little bit. Now, again, we're in deep, deep doo-doo because <laughs> we're going to try to represent in, uh, here in pictorial form which, what cannot be represented. What we are going to try to represent is Consciousness itself. Uh, consciousness itself is a nice neutral term for the ultimate reality. And we cannot diagram consciousness in any way for a very simple reason. Any scale we want to pick appears in consciousness. Nothing stands outside of consciousness. We can't create a coordinate system or a reference frame in which to place consciousness. So consciousness is limitless, has no limits, no boundaries, no ends to it. However, we're going to think of it as a great ocean, and this is a common metaphor in many traditions. There's a great endless sea, so already we're reducing it to something that has a surface. And this is an ocean that either can have waves or it can be perfectly flat. So we're going to reduce this image of this great limitless ocean now down to one line. That's number one, diagram number one. You're looking at the surface of the ocean here. But keep in mind what this is re representing. And keep in mind that this diagram is the, only the crudest, crudest kind of representation. But we're trying to get at some principles here. So what Longchenpa is saying is that, and he's picking an arbitrary beginning point, just someplace to talk about it, we can look at this ocean when there are no waves arising as the undifferentiated source, pure consciousness, primordial awareness, pure God, like in the, in the Abrahamic terms, before God created anything. And then, and again, this isn't then back there in history. We're talking about every moment of experience. And then a phenomena arises. This is phenomena arising. A little wave on the surface of this ocean. Boop! Like that. Now, notice that the wave is nothing but the ocean. The wave is not different from the ocean. The wave, you could say, is a form of the ocean. This goes boop, 
And then consciousness responds with a little attention, directing attention. Oh, what was that? Boop. So we see this little tension arising, right? And then this is where this inexplicable and mysterious ignorance takes place. And really you see in a funny way, and I, I, I could go on for hours about how we might think about this, but in this undifferentiated source, there is no enlightenment and there is no ignorance. And there is in there the potential for both. But we can't get to the enlightenment until we have the ignorance, the Sufis are particularly good about this. You know, uh, they look at even the play of ignorance as part of the great divine play of God. All possibilities have to be manifested for the divine to express itself, and that includes ignorance and delusion. If that can be done, then God's going to do it. Because God has infinite possibilities. Anyway, this attention arises, notices this phenomenon. Now, however, this is where we get fooled. This attention is really attracted by this phenomena, and it's, and of course it's not at the level of thought the way I have to use thought to express it. It's at a very subtle level, but it's something like, my gosh, there's an object over there. Well, there must be somebody observing that object. There must be an eye here. Oh, so now we have a subject and an object. So we have a, what seems to be a subject cognizing an object which seems to be separate from it. And I drew this little uh, dotted line in here across the peaks of the wave of the subject and the object to represent ignorance. Now, this only represents ig ignorance insofar as Above the line, if you were this subject wave, and you're looking across at this object wave, and you didn't see that they are actually waves of the same ocean, you might think that they are very distinct, separate. You see what I'm talking about? Is everybody kind of following this? So it's like we're here looking out at each other, and we don't see the connection, so to speak. We just see these distinct objects out there. That is what constitutes our ignorance. It's not that we can't think about them separately, just as we do with waves on an ocean. I can talk about waves without talking about an ocean. In fact, uh, if you go down to California and you hang out with surfers, they have all sorts of terms for different sorts of waves, of which I am not a surfer, I don't know the terminology, but you know, choppy waves, rolling waves, I don't know, whatever it is. We can distinguish very well and talk about different kinds of waves and so forth, and it's very useful to do so, particularly if you're a surfer. But we, we usually don't lose track in terms of looking at the ocean that these are waves of the ocean, that that distinction is imaginary. There is no true difference between the waves and the ocean. Then, once this is in place, of course, because of the nature of consciousness, it's always these waves arising. So here we are then lost in this sea of delusion, one little peak of self with all these other phenomena, objects arising all around us, and now we are a separate self and a world of separate objects. Is everybody following this? Yeah. Okay. So let's just keep that in mind here, because... Uh, this is going to become important, as you'll see as we progress. What then 
has to happen for realization to occur is somehow attention has to get back to its source. It has to return to its source. In delusion, attention is chronically distracted by all this phenomena arising. Attention can never rest. It's, and you just watch your own mind. This is not anything mysterious. How it jumps from one thing to another, to another, to another. So it never, so to speak, turns back on itself and discovers what it truly is. So we could say that all the practices of a mystical path are about getting attention, first of all, to stand still and to realize what it is. <clears throat> this is why, for instance, uh, Gershom Sholem, a great Kabbalist scholar, writes, only when the soul has stripped itself of all limitation and in mystical language has descended into the depths of nothing does it encounter the divine. This is the depths of nothing. There's nothing here. I mean, there's no objects here, no subject here. The stripping of the self is starting to see through this story of I, to see what drives it, to see how it's created. This grasping and this pushing away. This is what keeps us distracted. Everything that arises, the first question is, well, is there something that's going to help me? I better get it. Or, oh, something's going to hurt me. I better push it away. Or it's just neutral, and then what happens when it's neutral is the mind just goes to something else, skips over it, it's dull, it's boring, you know. So you can start to see why there's all this emphasis in uh, spiritual traditions about not just pursuing the gratifications of your desire blindly, habitually, in a, in a mechanical fashion, becoming aware of what's going on. This state is a, a state that is known in many traditions, uh, I call it kenosis, which is a Greek term like gnosis that means emptiness, and it's often talked about as emptiness or nothingness, as the Kabbalists just we just heard them say. Uh, it, it's not quite here exactly what the Buddhists mean when they talk about shunyata, which is the, uh, a more technical philosophical term, but we're talking about a real emptiness. We are talking about a consciousness in which no subjects and no objects are arising. That is the, the ground state, if you like. And it's a little bit more subtle than that. It means really that there's no distraction. It could be that nothing's arising, but truly that the mind is empty of any distraction. So even if there's something arising, attention is not distracted by it. <clears throat> Here's uh, how Shankara, the great Hindu sage, puts it. He says, in Nirvikalpa Samadhi, and in no other state, the true nature of Brahman is clearly and definitely revealed. In any other state, the mind remains unstable. It is filled with distracting thoughts. Brahman is the Hindu name for this ultimate reality. Nirvikapa Samadhi, Nirvilkapa is this actually put together of two words. Nir is a negation, not. And Vilkapa means conceptualization, fantasy, imagination. So it's in a state of non-conceptualization, non-fantasy, non-imagination. Samadhi, most of the time, is a, again, a Sanskrit word. It means a state of very deep absorption. It doesn't always mean that, so you have to be careful when you're reading through literature. But that's classically what it means, a state of very deep absorption. And it's usually associated 
uh, with a state that is generated through intense meditation practices, or they could be devotional practices, in which literally you get to a point back to this state where there are no objects in consciousness. It's, it's very similar to a state of dreamless sleep. Perhaps the most classic example of this is the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali's. And it's a, a whole meditation manual, starting with concentration on uh, some gross object, like your breath or whatever, and going to more and more subtle objects until finally you enter a state where there are no objects at all. But this is not just in the Hindu tradition. These states are known in other traditions. For instance, here's uh, the Sufi. The Sufis are, if I haven't said it, the mystics of Islam. Ansari of Harat. And he has a description of the hundred grounds. These are the hundred, uh, you know, stations, plateaus you go through on a spiritual path. And here's the description of the last one. He says, in this state, attachments are severed, secondary causes are destroyed, conventions and norms are nullified, limits are shattered, understandings are wrecked, histories are obliterated, signs are extinct. Illusions are effaced, expressions are negated, and God, the one and unique, abides by himself. That's pretty graphic. That's this. All, everything else is destroyed, wrecked. Here's the Christian mystic, Dionysius the Arapagate, and he says of the mystic entering this state, he breaks free away from what sees and is seen, and he plunges into the truly mysterious darkness of unknowing. Here, renouncing all that the mind may conceive, wrapped entirely in the intangible and the invisible, he belongs completely to him who is beyond everything. Here, being neither oneself nor someone else, one is supremely united by a completely unknowing inactivity of all knowledge, and knows beyond the mind by knowing nothing. The same thing he's talking about, right? Now, in point of fact, it's difficult to attain these states of samadhi, of absorption. It takes intense practice. Uh, it's particularly difficult for householders when you have all these distractions in your worldly life. If you want to go off to a cave, and by the way, this is why these yogis went off to caves in the Himalayas and so forth, so they could practice without all this distraction. And then you practice and practice for a number of years, and you'll get very good at this, and you'll be able to enter these states. But, in fact, you don't have to do this because kenosis is the ground of what's going on right now, in every moment. It's not necessarily some special state. It is the trough between the waves. And every time something appears in consciousness and disappears from consciousness, there's a moment of kenosis. Very brief. A moment's even too gross a word. A split second, there's kenosis. Everything. Phenomena, thoughts, feelings, whatever is going on. Here's how Rabbi Joseph Ben Sholom, the great Kabbalist of uh, Barcelona, described it. In every transformation of reality, in every change of form, or every time the stature of a thing is altered, 
the abyss of nothingness is crossed and for a fleeting mystical moment becomes visible. Isn't that beautiful? It's like all this is coming out of and returning to this abyss of nothingness. In uh, the Tao Te Ching, Lao Tzu talks about following the myriad creatures back to their source. The myriad creatures is just an idiom for all phenomena. So this meditation is just watching anything that arises in consciousness and following it back to its source. And it takes you back to this. I mean, but it's just, it disappears. This is interesting, you see, why we at the Center for Sacred Sciences talk about all mystics say the same thing in detail. And you can't get more culturally far apart than a rabbi in Barcelona in the 1300s and Lao Tzu in China, the other opposite end of the Eurasian continent in uh, whatever it was, 500 uh, BC, right? And this particularly is important to understand why, for instance, Zen students get awakened by some phenomena appearing and disappearing. Blowing out a candle. When the Zen students ripe, the master blows out a candle. And this abyss of nothing is revealed. There's a, a wonderful a little account I heard of, uh, I read in uh, Zen master Haikun's work. He talks about a guy named, uh, let's see if I get his name here. Uh, I won't pronounce it correctly anyway, so it probably doesn't matter. Chi Quan. <laughs> Chi Quan was a Zen student. He studied very hard, and he got disgusted, and he gave it up, and he went out with a sickle, and he was, he was uh, chopping down some weeds in a field, and his sickle kicked a pebble, and it hit a piece of hollow bamboo, and it made a talk sound. And his mind opened up. He was awakened. <laughs> this is what's going on here, you see. The mind is undistracted and able to follow one phenomena right back to its source and then recognizes. The trick is undistracted. Undistracted. That's why it's still important for Zen students to do all this practice and do all this meditation. Training in this mindfulness, as the Buddhists call it. This undistracted mind. Otherwise, you know, many, many people have heard a pebble hit a fence post and don't wake up or seen a candle blow out. It's the undistracted nature of the mind that's important. This could also apply to the arising and passing of a single thought. Often in the beginning of a meditation uh, practice, people start thinking of thought as the enemy. And they're looking for this state to appear. This is very difficult. It can appear in meditation. But truly speaking, you don't need to wait for that. If you just watch one thought without getting involved in it, no distraction, arise and pass away, this is down to the trough. Here's what another Tibetan master, Gendon Rinpoche, says. This perception of the essence of mind takes place when all previous thoughts have come to a stop and the next thought has not yet appeared. The mind is in the spontaneous present, its own reality. It is the mind which sees its own essence, and this is what we call primordial wisdom. So if we want to think of one of these things now as a thought arising, here's a little wave, the thought arises, it disappears, and the mind just stays right there in that pause, in that moment, long enough to see what is. Then another thought can arise. Now, of course, the problem is these intervals are very brief. 
Very brief. Uh, you might get some sense of this, though. Have you ever been lost in thought like a fantasy, and someone comes along and says, um, Joel? And you go, what? what? Oh. And there's like a moment where you're blanked out. You don't know where you were. It's like you cross over. That's actually a pretty um, dramatic example of this interval. You've just crossed over that abyss of nothingness. And, and you've noticed it. Most of the time, we just don't, we don't notice at all. But in that moment, you've actually noticed it. This is uh, one of the reasons, for instance, Tibetan masters love to go, hey! <laughs> and you're startled. And there's a moment of a break, and that abyss is visible. So, again, none of these things are easy. See, even though you don't have to work hard to get into this state, you do have to practice mindfulness and practice having an undistracted attention, even though things are arising, in order to be able to realize this interval, this little abyss of nothingness. But it doesn't work for you. We still we got more here. <laughs> Kenosis also occurs very naturally as you're falling asleep, and also as you're waking up at the other end, but particularly as you're falling asleep. And this is the moment when the waking world disappears, and before dreams have come in. In fact, this is precisely where my awakening occurred. And that was one of the reasons I thought it was so totally unique. I never heard of anything like this. In fact, it's very common in many traditions. And in the Tibetan tradition, they actually have practices about it. So here's Gendon Rinpoche again. As you start to fall asleep, you may have the impression that the world outside all the different manifestations created by the mind folds up and comes to dissolve in the heart. This is followed by an instant where the mind becomes very dull, without any clarity at all, only complete darkness. At that point, just for a brief instant, the clear light of the mind will appear. If we can remain in it without being distracted elsewhere, we will be able to recognize that clear light. Clear likes one of their terms for consciousness itself. Again, interesting. You see, he talks about this darkness. Remember, I read you the Christian mystic who talked about entering into the darkness. Uh, often, uh, for mystics, darkness is a is a term for how you approach the divine. But this is the again the key. Can we go through that process without distraction? Now, in my personal case, I hadn't done any practices of the night. These Tibetan practices are practices that help you fall asleep without distraction. But I had come to a point in my life where I was so exhausted with everything that my mind was just naturally not distracted by anything. It was a total neutral state. I had no interest in anything. So as I was falling asleep, I, I, my mind wasn't thinking about, what are you going to do tomorrow? And you know, so forth. None of that was arising. No desires were arising. No aversions were arising. One thought occurred is something I had been reading and it was a passage from a Hindu text precisely about this in the moment when the waking world has vanished before dreams have come being is revealed and it came to mind and it was just like a slight shift of attention oh oh yes it's true boom there it is but my mind was not distracted elsewhere then finally there's another golden opportunities, and that is at the time of death. 
A lot of people don't like to hear about that. But frankly, it doesn't make much difference. If you spend your whole path and you're preparing for death and it happens to death, fine. Look, your life is a blink in eternity anyway. I mean, everybody says, oh, what good to do to wake up when I die? <laughs> it's do a lot of good. And I don't want to get off on a whole discussion about uh, after death here. But... Uh, this is, again, known in all traditions. The Christians and the Sufis call it having the vision of God at the moment of death. It's a prime opportunity. The Kabbalists call it receiving the kiss. This is beautiful. It's like the kiss of the divine. And uh, here's how an anonymous disciple of Abraham, Abu Lafia, who is a great Kabbalist, uh, describes this. He says, And this is the secret of the kiss spoken of regarding the patriarchs of whom it is said that they died with the kiss. That is, that at the moment that they departed, they attained the essence of all apprehensions and above all degrees. Because the interruptions and all the obstacles which are in the world left them, and the intellect returned to cleave to that light which is the intellect. Another way of talking about consciousness, not talking about the thinking intellect here. But notice what he says here about death. When you're dying, the world and all its distractions you're leaving behind. That's why it's such a golden opportunity. In the Hindu and Tibetan traditions, they uh, have this very well worked out in terms of their cosmology that the various elements that make up the body and the mind get absorbed one into the other. So the earth element gets absorbed into the water element, the water element gets absorbed into the fire element, and so forth, until finally there's nothing left. Boom! Back here. In this moment. No phenomena arising. And there are, especially in the Tibetan tradition, practices that you can do if you know you're dying, you know, for, to take advantage of this. But here's what uh, Bokar Rinpoche, Tibetan master, says. When the last absorption is complete, we are in the phase of attainment clear light, or the clear light of fundamental nature of the mind. In fact, it can only be clear light provided we identify it. Otherwise, it is simply ignorance or an unconscious darkness. Again, this problem is we have to be able to identify what's going on. We have to be able to recognize what's going on. Same like with falling asleep. Everybody falls asleep every night. You're passing through that clear light, but you don't recognize it. You don't identify it. So, this is why even if you attain these high yogic states, there's no guarantee that you're going to be enlightened. And the yogis who practice in the, in the classical tradition, you know, they practice attaining these samadhis, then all samadhis are impermanent, their states. Uh, they fall apart, then they go back, they go back, they keep going back. It's not just being here that's enlightenment. If there's no recognition, no identification, it's just dull, unconscious darkness. And again, this is known in all traditions. Here's what St. Bonaventure says. Thus our mind, accustomed to the darkness of beings and the images of the things of senses, when it glimpses the light of supreme being seems to itself to see nothing. It does not recognize that this very darkness is the supreme illumination of our mind. When he, he's talking now about we are accustomed to the darkness of being, he's using that metaphorically. The, the being blinds us to the truth. But you see, look, in a state where nothing is arising, 
you can see the difficulty. There's nothing to see. If the mind is just even still slightly restless or distracted, just slightly, it's looking around saying, well, there's nothing here. And it's still sort of moving around, looking for this clear light, you see what I mean? Not recognizing that that nothingness is the clear light. So when we're talking about undistracted attention here, we mean undistracted. We mean attention that has totally receded back into that ocean. If there's a little wiggle even going on up here, it's missing. It's still restless. It's still looking, 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 looking. This is why there is always an element of spontaneity, as the Buddhists would put it, or grace in awakening. There is no effort that can make this recognition happen because any effort in this state is a disturbance of the state. It's a little bit like those quantum paradoxes. So if you go and think, okay, I'm going to be absolutely effortless. And if there's the slightest effort to be effortless, that's disturbing the state. It's a paradox in here. So there's always an element of surprise in awakening. You, nobody knows when it's going to happen. There has to be a surrender, and if there is surrender, there can be a kind of pointing. As I said, this verse that came into my mind served as a kind of pointer. There was just total surrender, so you might say my attention was just up, you know, a little bit here, and it said, look, this, look at the state, and the attention just went, oh, and just went flat, just went back to the state. Uh, one of the quickest paths that is on record was the path of the founder of Zen Buddhism, Hui Ning, who without any previous practice heard the uh, verse from the Diamond Sutra being recited. Emptiness is form, form is emptiness, emptiness is not other than form, form is not other than emptiness. And boom, his mind opened up. He was in a marketplace, loud, full of, you know, shouting. Yeah, he doesn't say, he doesn't know how it happened either, but you can see how... In that moment, that verse simply just directed his attention to emptiness and form. Boom! So his mind opened up. He wasn't looking for it. No effort. Just for some reason, his attention decided to follow that instruction perfectly in that moment, and boom, he awakened. So the key element, you have to be in not necessarily this state, like a state of samadhi, but you have to be in the trough. Attention has to be in the trough for realization to happen. Realization, then, is a recognition of the identity, the nature of attention in that trough. It's just the identity of consciousness. It's consciousness recognizing consciousness, is one way to put it. And here are just some descriptions. Here's another Tibetan master, Garb Dorje. Awareness itself is liberated by means of awareness, like water dissolving into water. One's own nature simply encounters itself, but its essence transcends all expression in words. When attention goes back to the sea, the wave of attention, it's encountering itself. The, the wave is made of water. The sea is water. Attention is made of consciousness, of awareness. It goes back to the, the ultimate infinite sea of awareness. Here's St. Teresa of Avila, great Christian mystic. Here it is like rain falling from the heavens into the river or spring. There is nothing but water there, and it is impossible to divide or separate the water belonging to the river from that which fell from the heavens. 
Here is Ansari of Harat. The raindrop reached the sea and found therein its mellowing, just as the star was effaced by the daylight. Whoever reached his Lord has attained his true self. Look at these metaphors. Now, Teresa Avila did not read Garb Dorje or vice versa. Do you know what I mean? They're speaking directly out of their own experience. They're just trying to see what in the, in the environment could possibly communicate something of this. And so they all come up with the same metaphors. Amazing, isn't it? I always like to point this out because on my spiritual path, I started, from the, uh, started off being a real cynic and a hard-nosed materialist and all that. So, but when I started to read this and I saw, I mean, philosophers don't agree cross-culturally, you know, but you get to the mystics. Maybe they're all mad, but they've all got the same madness. That intrigue me. <laughs> but wait a minute. The seeker has not yet attained full gnosis, even with this recognition. And Augustine is a good example, St. Augustine. He had an experience of entering into this kind of samadhi state. And here's what he says about it. I entered into the innermost part of myself, and I was able to do this because you, God, were my helper. I entered and I, saw, and I saw with my soul's eye, such as it was, an unchangeable light shining above this eye of my soul and above my mind. And then, in the flash of a trembling glance, my mind arrived at that which is. He doesn't even want to call it God here. It's just that which is. His mind arrived in a flash of a trembling glance. This is something else I don't have time to go into today. It's always absolutely sudden. It's got to be sudden. The reason it has to be sudden, it's a quantum leap out of time. You can't get from time to timelessness through time. You can't get from time to eternity. It's, it's suddenly time is gone. Okay? He's, real, he's in samadhi. He's realized that which is. He knows ultimate reality. He's seen it himself directly. He doesn't write about it through the scriptures. So far, so good. But then, here's what happens. He goes on. But I had not the power to keep my eyes steadily fixed. In my weakness, I felt myself falling back and returning again to my habitual ways, carrying nothing with me except a loving memory of it and a longing for something which may be described as a food of which I had perceived the fragrance, but which I was not yet able to eat. So, let's see what's happening here. He's in this state. He recognizes it. But then this phenomenon starts to arise again. Attention starts to arise again. And you see what I mean? Oh, pretty soon there's a sense of a subject, an I, and pretty soon he's fallen back into delusion, samsara. So he's gotten what I call a Gnostic flash. He's directly seeing the truth for himself. This is very valuable, not to be poo-pooed. But he loses it, in a sense. What has to happen is, because phenomena is inevitably going to arise. It's, uh, enlightenment is not about staying in a state of nothingness, and no states of nothingness stay the same. No state is permanent. There's no state anywhere that is permanent. You might be a yogi in a state of a samadhi for years, but eventually it's going to disintegrate, because it's just a state. When the wave arises, it has to be recognized as that too is consciousness. Do you see what I'm talking about? 
So it's not just when the ocean is flat, oh, this is the ocean of consciousness, but then the wave arises, say, yes, that's consciousness. And then attention arises, yes, that's consciousness. Because there is no difference between the wave and the ocean. So, when the forms of consciousness are also recognized to be consciousness, then we, the other shoe drops, so to speak. Here's what Dojem Lingpa, Tibetan master, says. Liberation occurs in the following way. The instant the ground's manifestations arise, that was what he's talking about, with the alaya, the source, the ground. The instant the ground's manifestations arise, one does not apprehend them as something else, but rather recognizes them as one's own interior radiance. At the first instant of movement, the recognition that the manifestations are inner radiance causes realization to dawn. Immediately thereafter, deception is dispelled and the pristine wisdom unfolds. At this point, the ground fully develops into awakening. This is re-enlightenment, the realization of the primordial enlightenment within one's own nature. You see what he's describing here? That's very important, this very instant. In my case, I saw in the state of dreamless sleep between dream and waking, I saw the ground, and I jumped up and I opened my eyes. I looked around, I couldn't believe it. it's the same thing. No difference. Oh, I looked at the doorknob, my God, it's God. I heard a car horn honk, my God, it's God, it's all God, it's always nothing but God. <laughs> now, this is very important. This is also, um, uh, and those of you who are Buddhists know the story of the Buddha. The whole story of the Buddha's night under the enlightenment tree. Most of the story, but the thing that people focus on is he's having all these insights about the nature of samsara and delusion and this and that. And he sees all his past lives and all this is going on. And at the very end of the night, he sees the morning star and he awakens. That morning star is crucial. That is the phenomenon. Boop. If he had not seen that morning star, he would not have awakened. He might have had come back with great wisdom. He might have had a Gnostic flash, but he would not have awakened. We're still not out of the woods yet, however, unfortunately. Because by the time we get to this state of selfhood, this is a highly conditioned state. It's very mechanical. It runs on its own habit energy. It just keeps going. And especially if we haven't done a lot of work on the path, dismantling and seeing through that conditioning, then, even though we may recognize phenomena arising for a while as being pure God, that conditioning sort of just rolls over. We gradually begin to lose this. And this is why I call this a Gnostic episode rather than just a Gnostic flash. And there are two particular things we have to look for. And that is, in virtually every case that I think that I know about, awakening produces, first of all, tremendous bliss, generates just an explosion of bliss, manifest bliss, I mean, bliss that fills the mind that you feel and so forth. And the other thing, and this is sort of uh, harder to describe, it also generates a tremendous tranquility, as the best term I can think of for this, which is really not a thing, but it's the absence of certain things. It's the absence of desire. It's the absence of aversion. 
Uh, it's the absence of I thought. I mean, they're thoughts, but not I. Because there's nothing to be desired or one over another because everything's God and there's nothing to be averse to. So here you are in a state of bliss and the absence of all this. Now, bliss is a phenomena. It would be hard to represent as a wave. We might represent it as a color of the sea. You know, like the sea has turned uh, a beautiful sunset ruby red or something. You know what I mean? Because it pervades everything. But it is still a very subtle kind of phenomenon. This is why in the Hindu tradition, bliss is called the last covering of the Atman. The Atman is another name for your true self. And so in their tradition, it's conceived as being hidden by these coverings, the body, emotions, thoughts, vital energy. And the last covering is bliss. That sounds strange. Everybody wants bliss, but then that's the last covering, the last obstacle. And here's what uh, Toku Urjan Rinpoche says about this. When you have bliss and attachment to the feeling of bliss, there is duality. And the seed or the cause of rebirth in the three realms of samsara is thereby still sown in your being. In other words, if you mistake the bliss generated by realization for the realization and you become attached to that very subtly and you try to grasp onto that, it might last for days, weeks, months, even years, but eventually you'll start to fade away. And then, uh-oh, what happened to my realization? Because you've confused the two, and there's still the subtle grasping. This is, comes from this old habit energy. People don't even recognize that that's going on, but that's what's happening. So that's something that has to be overcome, this obstacle. You have to see the bliss, but as the bliss passes away, you have to let it go. Be totally detached. Let it go back into the ocean of consciousness. The tranquility is harder, especially because if you've been a spiritual seeker and you've been told desire and aversion are obstacles and this and that and the I thought, you shouldn't be thinking about that. And then here you are going along and again for weeks or months or whatever, and then a little desire arises. Where did that come from? A little aversion arises. Where did that come from? And then pretty soon the mind's saying, gee, am I enlightened or not? There it is. You're boom, right back into the, into the whole sea of struggle and searching and whatnot. And so this is subtler, but this is equally important. There's no problem whatsoever with desire or aversion. They are perfectly natural arising waves in the sea of consciousness. It's when we identify them as me, and then they lead the grasping to enhance me. Or if it's an aversion we identified as my aversion, it leads to rejecting something. That's where the problem comes in. So it's very important in the, uh, in the aftermath of our initial awakening, realizing all this is ways of consciousness, that even when desire and aversion arise and I thoughts arise, you look directly at them. That too is nothing but a wave of consciousness. And here's how Tibetan master Dza Patrol Rinpoche uh, describes this. Even though some thoughts and passions may be produced, when one recognizes that they are not in any way different from the primordial awareness of the Buddha nature, and that the inherent nature of these discursive thoughts is in actuality the clear light of the Buddha nature, then that is known as the mother clear light, which abides as the base recognizing it is then known as the clear light of the path of practice.
where the clear light of the base and the clear light of the path become inseparable is known as the meeting of the clear light of the sun with the clear light of the mother. So we could put it this way. Let's call this a desire arises. Attention arises. And you see that this too is nothing but primordial awareness, consciousness itself. And the attention that is undistracted and has realized its true nature is the sun clear light. The mother clear light is always the clear light of consciousness, which is always present. And so the mother clear light and the sun clear light recognize each other. And the reason the, uh, the Tibetans use this image is because just the way a mother and her son would have no trouble recognizing each other. It's direct, immediate, and it's also, of course, joyful. In that culture, anyway. Sometimes in this culture we have problems. <laughs> but uh, it's this instant, it uh, communicates this instant recognition and this coming together of what was once inseparable to begin with is another part of the image. That's why earlier one of these Tibetan masters called it a re-enlightenment. It's called recognition. You are actually recognizing something you already know. You just don't know you know. I know that's paradoxical, but that's the way it goes. <laughs> this is why it's so important to do practices, even though practices do not produce enlightenment. As I said, there's always this element of spontaneity or grace or whatever. But if you haven't done practices, if you haven't really looked into what is the nature of the self and been able to see that it's your own grasping and pushing away that causes the suffering and come to see that more and more so that you then start to dismantle this mechanism, this habit, start to break this habit. Not because you're told this is bad, you should, but because you see in your own insight, well, this is the cause of my suffering. All this greediness and grasping. No wonder I'm suffering. I'm grasping on impermanent things. They don't last. The more your own intelligence shows you that, the more you let go, naturally. On the course of a path, the freer you become. Eventually, you get to the point where I got, where I felt myself, rather than being something I had to enhance and protect, I felt it was a great burden. And I was really frustrated with these mystics. They would say, you know, I give up yourself. And I'd say, yes, yes, okay, but how do you do it? No one tells you how to do it. I was ready to give it up. When all this happened, there was nothing there anymore to want to protect or to enhance. So, then... We can say full enlightenment is the continuing, and continuing is a word in time. This is really timeless, but we have to use language. Is the continuing witnessing of every phenomena as a divine self-disclosure. That's a Sufi term. I love that term. Everything that manifests is a divine self-disclosure. It's the formless divine showing you what it can do in form. It's putting on a play, a great drama. It's a symphony. It's like saying, look, look at all this richness inside of me, and I'm just going to display it. In the Hindu tradition, they call it the Leela of God. Same thing as the divine self-disclosure. So let me end with just some descriptions from some mystics about this. Here's a Tibetan Dugo Kinsei. Bodhisattvas are never fooled by appearances just as a magician is never fooled by his own tricks. For they know that appearances have no true existence, and they know that failing to recognize that fact is delusion. So it's no more ever being fooled that anything isn't the divine self-disclosure. It's no more looking at a pillow and saying, oh, gee, that's not God, how could that be God? 
is seen directly. Not that anything changes in, in, a, in a sensory sense about the pillow. That pillow is a divine self-disclosure, just as it is, just right now. It's perfectly fine. It's part of the great perfection. It's our problem, not the pillow's problem, that we don't see it. Here's Meister Eckhart, great Christian mystic. To him God shines in all things, for everything tastes to him of God, and God forms himself for that man out of all things. Why? Because as Ananda Moyamai, she was a great uh, Hindu mystic of the 20th century, in the whole universe, in all states of being, in all forms is he. All names are his names, all shapes his shapes, all qualities his qualities, and all modes of existence are truly his. Everything that we give separate names to is really a name of God. So table is the name of God, gong is the name of God. Blackboard is the name of God. Mary Song is the name of God. One ocean with lots of different names. And this is one of my favorites. This is Ibn Arabi, the great Sufi, says, My eyes have never gazed in other than his face. My ears have never heard other than his words. Everything you see, everything you hear. And it's interesting, he says, never. Because enlightenment is retroactive. <laughs> he's never heard anything but God you've never heard anything but God or seen anything but God now I just want to point out something here it's a final thing we can look at this diagram as somewhat approximating how uh, ignorance and delusion and subject and object duality all evolve out of this undifferentiated source and we can look at it as a path as returning to that undifferentiated source. It doesn't have to go all the way back to this as a state, but it's always to come back to this trough, to the undifferentiated source, no matter where it is in the, in the process of manifestation. And we can see why so much attention is put on developing an undistracted mind. Why all this business about meditation and focusing on an object and not being distracted? We can see why so much attention is put on dismantling our self-centeredness, allowing love and compassion to be our motive for action rather than grasping and acquisitiveness. This is really important because, as I said, if we don't undo this, we might have Gnostic flashes, but they ain't going to stick. These are the two main parts of the spiritual path, cultivating love and compassion and seeing truth. And then we start making our way back. And you might, you know, you might stumble right here like a, a waning did. You know, boom, he just looked right there at the trough and his mind opened. Maybe it's in a state of meditation where only very few objects arise and not much distraction. Maybe you all go all the way back to a state of samadhi or, or the state between waking and sleep or whatever. But then if we look at the last one, the waves, the very wavy surface of the ocean, which in this diagram is delusion, if we just take out this imaginary line, and really we're not even taking out the imaginary line, we're taking out the mistaken apprehension that that line is real, we have enlightenment. Enlightenment is no different from delusion in that sense. There's nothing in enlightenment really that is different from delusion. The only difference is something imaginary that doesn't exist in the first place. So enlightenment, waking up, is about discovering the truth of what is going on right here, right now. Very ordinary in one sense. 
So I hope maybe this was helpful to you. Now, don't be grasping at this scheme and running out now and so forth. But I hope it was helpful in elucidating some of the principles and the deep reasons for doing these various practices. Because it is quite precise when it comes down to it, what has to happen for full awakening to occur. We'll take a, a little time here for some questions, because I already see somebody's hand going up back like that. We have gone on a little longer, but let's have a few questions, and then we'll break and enjoy our goodies. Yes? When you talk about the bliss, you said the last attachment is, is the bliss. Right. But yet, aren't you in kind of a continual state of bliss in your gnosis? Uh, we have to make a distinction here, and it's a hard one to make, between manifest bliss and unmanifest bliss. And... The nature of consciousness is bliss. But it's not necessarily a feeling of bliss. You, you can't know what it means that the nature of consciousness is bliss until you realize it. What we usually think of as bliss is a feeling. The whole body feels great. The mind feels great. You know what I mean? You know, and there are degrees of bliss. But that, that is a state. That is phenomena. So that comes and goes for a Gnostic or anybody else. Gnostics aren't running around in a continual manifest state of bliss. You know, that would be like, uh, I don't know, a, a, well, the analogy that comes to mind is a continual state of sexual arousal. You know, it would, after a while, it would become painful almost. <laughs> but there is such a thing, yes, as innate bliss sometimes it's called, or unmanifest bliss. And that is more like... Uh, an appreciation. And this, this is a poor analogy, but you could go to a, a whole bunch of different movies, or list the music is a better one. You could listen to sad songs, happy songs. Some songs put you in a state of bliss. You know what I mean? Some songs really just open your heart, and you know, and this and that. And when all is said and done, you recognize that it's all beautiful music. It's like more equivalent to beauty almost. The beauty does not depend on whether it's happy or sad or any particular state. Do you know what I mean? The beauty is just in the performance of the music. Yes, Claude. If, if the undistracted mind is a, uh, uh, something to be sought in order to be able to, to clear, the, clear the path and find the true reality, and, and so you meditate or so at the period between death and, and uh, between sleep and, and wakefulness, you, you, you're more likely to find that. The two other phenomena I, that I think of in that context, and I wondered if, if there's any place for it, are dizziness and hypnosis. Uh, I've never heard of hypnosis per se, but that's interesting. Uh, dizziness, yes, passing out, fainting. The Tibetans have two other ones that uh, they say are prime golden opportunities. One is sneezing, and the other is orgasm. Whenever we feel there's a break in reality... The continuity of reality, the way we experience, is a constructed continuity. There is an underlying, undifferentiated continuity, but that constructed continuity, whenever there's a break in it, there's an opportunity that opens up for us. So yes, it could very well be. Uh, I've noticed my mind would think of everything before we think of nothing like three decades ago, so I just kind of trained it not to bore me to death. 
All right, yes, and we don't like to be bored to death with our minds, but this is a case of going beyond whether you're bored to death or not bored to death, whether the thoughts are intriguing thoughts or whether they're uh, disturbing thoughts, being able to hold that attention steady. So whatever thoughts are arising, we're not paying any attention to them. And that's when you get an, an undistracted mind. Because otherwise, even if your mind is always entertaining you, then you're always distracted by that mind. You see what I mean? Yeah, but like, sometimes they come up with stuff that they go, wow. mind is capable of creating that, wow, or I could let, you know, just go on with this little and whatever, you know. And this is and this is actually becomes a problem in meditation. As the mind becomes more disciplined and as the normal thoughts can't distract it, it's almost like you have an adversary in there said, Oh, well we'll get you. We'll start coming with brilliant insights and you know, concepts and stuff. I, one time when I was meditating I thought I really was becoming a genius. I mean I was so impressed. <laughs> but all that's distraction. All that's distraction. So we do sometimes get insights that are conceptual, where the, the concept is the expression of the insight. But we want to be very careful not to hang on to the concept part and not start weaving another theory about the, our insight. Wesley, what's the matter with you? Did you faint? <laughs> <laughs> I, was just, I was just thinking, actually. <laughs> <laughs> He said he was just thinking. <laughs> it seems like there's these little breaks all the time. I mean, like, like now I've got my hand here, and then I put it up here. And in between the two, are you saying, it's like there's a wave that shows up here. For me, the dotted line is like a fog. There's a wave that shows up here, and then that precedes, and one shows up over here. Yeah. And... And in between the two, there's a gap. There's a there's like there's a missing link somewhere, and that's maybe that's just a touch of the of the source that links the two. Um, so I'm wondering. Well, I'm wondering if um, when we when we see these waves, for me, it's like there's a low-lying fog on the sea. And, and so you see the wave appear, and then you see it disappear, because it comes up through the fog, and right. then the fog goes, what is that fog made out of? Ah, nothing. <laughs> see, that's the trouble. Oh, there isn't nothing. anything there. Oh, this nothing. is why the whole analogy with the sea breaks down at that very point, because when you're watching the sea, and there are waves, and then, you know, occasionally, it can be like glass. I mean, really, you know, it's just rare. But, but you still see something. But when there's nothing arising, there's nothing to be seen. So you say, so what is the fog? The fog ain't nothing. That's why it's a, a, it's, that's what they're talking about, this dense darkness that our minds don't recognize as the illumination. You see what I'm talking about? If you want to explore this more, there are two kinds of phenomena that are particularly uh, lend themselves to a meditation like this. And one is sound. Because unlike visual phenomena, we, our minds construct all this continuity and stuff. But sound phenomena obviously, you know, come and go. They arise out of no sound. I mean, it, there's no sound, and then it arises. There's always a beautiful moment 
that sound goes right back to no sound, nothing. It doesn't go back to anything you will hear. You don't hear silence. So sound is a very, very interesting phenomenon. You know, you can see this pretty clearly. The other is your own thoughts. A thought. Where does the thought come from and go to? What is the silence out of which a thought arises and to which it returns? Yes, Abdullah. Um, I'd like some clarification here. When we speak of awareness and consciousness, we're talking about the same thing, right? Yes. Okay. So, like, if one experiences awareness, and um, is this the same awareness that is where everything comes from, like in the material world? So, would I, would I experience awareness? So, probably there's no I when I experience awareness. Is it the same as where the material world comes from? The answer to the question is yes, with this exception. It is the source of what we call the material world, which is not actually material. It's all right to call it that. I use that term too. But when we use that term in English, the material world, that term comes with a lot of baggage. And we think of matter as being something out there, existing as an object, you know. So all the phenomena that our minds construct a material world out of, because the whole idea of a material world is just an idea. But all that appearances, phenomena, all that is simply waves of awareness or consciousness. If we would see it rightly. You see what I mean? So science, I'm not against science at all, I'm not knocking science, but science is a superimposition of our thought patterns on this phenomenon. And it's wonderful. Science itself can be a beautiful enterprise, do you know what I mean? But we should never be fooled by what's going on. Science can never be anything more than imagination. It's thought. You know, it's just like a character on a movie screen can never jump off the screen and become real. It's always a form of light on the screen. So whatever our theories of in science, they always remain just theories. They can't ever become real. Scientists are constantly crossing that line and taking their theories to be the reality. And everybody else does it too. I don't mean single scientists out, but they are our priesthood in this day and age, so we should be particularly aware of what happens in science in that respect. Is that helpful? Yes. All right, let's bring the formal part of the morning to a close. And we have lots of good goodies this morning, festive goodies. You're welcome to stay and enjoy them. This is your last day to check things out from the library before this long period of aridity, this desert experience you're going to go through. And we will see you, some of you anyway, September 24th, is it? 24th, Sunday. Until then, have a wonderful summer.